Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. Enlighten us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ, our beloved. Amen. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's quite a claim. Everybody. We all know the old cliche, call me if you need anything. We've said it a million times to people. We only half-heartedly mean it. Very few of us have actually been called upon in times of need. And yet, it's a powerful statement of solidarity that we offer to those. It's a way of us expressing our care and our concern. It's a way for us to be kind to somebody in our midst who's in the midst of some deep suffering, some deep challenge. If you need anything, call me. Reminds me of that Diana Ross song, you know? If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far, don't worry, baby. You know the song, don't you? Half expected you to erupt and sing along. Come on. You've heard the epistle reading Paul's letter from Romans this morning. His bold proclamation, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These words, more than anything, I think, were challenges to our Presbyterian forebearers. They made them nervous. After all, what about all the people who hear the word of God proclaimed and preached and shrug their shoulders and just simply go away completely unfazed? Are we really to believe that one day, through some sort of, I don't know, last minute or deathbed confession, these people will be with us in the glorious hereafter, those of us who have sat in the pews for 50 or 60 or 70 years and been on session and had to go through, you know, floor debates at the uh, General Assembly every other year. Any good Christian knows that what it means to be a Christian is far from just saying some words, that it's a, a whole of life thing. It's something that you live out. It's not something that hangs on a flimsy confession or a prayer. It's not like those you know, popular churches who say, if only you would say these words. Come on, I invite you. Say these words with me, and all your problems with God will go away. Presbyterians are famous for the use of a doctrine called predestination. I don't have to explain what it means to you, but it basically holds that God has done all the sorting and the choosing of who's going to believe and who's not going to believe before we ever existed. It's useless to try to convince the ungodly to change their minds. It's their lot in life to lose out. That's kind of what it's about. Calvin, John Calvin, the beginner, the kind of the founder of Presbyterianism in certain forms, um, was a big proponent of the idea that there was a God who chose um, who would inherit eternal life and who would perish forever. And if you ask me, that's a very 16th century notion of God, and in some ways as a modern person, it seems a bit heinous um, for even the devil in some ways to think that God would act in such a way. But of course, we know that theology, all theology, is autobiographical. And so we imagine John Calvin in Geneva preaching six, seven, eight times a day, wondering, why don't these people respond to what I'm saying? Well, 
it must be because they're not the elect. It's a very convenient doctrine. Paul has something else altogether in mind. And throughout the last chapters of Romans, Romans 9 through 11, he is basically making the best case he can for Israel, who are the chosen people of God in his mind, uh, to understand differently an approach to being righteous, righteousness. It's this really big word that's used all throughout the Old Testament. What does it mean? Judaism on the whole uh, is much more about living an ethical life than it is about introspection. In Judaism, uh, it's a rules-based order. Everybody stands very democratically before God. It's very clear what God requires, and it's very clear that God does require. And God in Judaism is utterly transcendent, far off, but has left instructions and almost a manual for life in what they call Torah, law, right? It's not a book of rules. It's a book of instructions on how to live rightly both with your neighbor and before God. And Paul is interested in this notion that is found all throughout Torah, this notion of righteousness. And by this, he doesn't mean being upright or moral as much as he means what does it take to feel whole, to be at peace with yourself, with your maker, with your loved ones, with your maker. The Jews he's writing to remain committed to the ways that they have been instructed since they were just little wee children. He calls it the works of law, the things you do that God has required to ensure that you are righteous. And Paul's argument is that God is much more accessible than we might ever have imagined through the Spirit, through Christ, through faith. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the righteousness in Paul's mind that comes by way of Christ, through Christ, is very close and cosmic. It's not far off, and you don't need to chase it. So if these Jews that he's writing to depend on written Torah, Paul is trying to emphasize that the gospel is an oral tradition. It's about speaking and hearing and listening and introspectively thinking about what that means for you and for the world. It speaks not to the mind in the ways that the rules might read, but to the heart. It's the difference between a left-brained person and a right-brained person, we might say today, right? The artist and the actuary. They're just different ways. And Paul wants to expand, and not overcome, but expand the world that these people that he's writing to live in. He wants them to understand the wideness, the spaciousness of what God has done. So it's a good thing, he says, to think about the barriers to faith that exist. And I think it's what these verses are mainly about. It's what Paul's on about. He's arguing for a straight line instead of hurdles to God. It's something our Presbyterian forebearers knew all too well as well. Throughout the Reformation, they rejected any form of a mediating relationship with God other than Scripture and Christ himself. They rejected any kind of doctrine or dogma that kept the Bible out of the hands of ordinary people, that didn't push ordinary people to do faith thinking on their own and not just swallow wholesale 
what the clerics and what the institutional people in the church hierarchies were thinking. In fact, they rejected all notions of hierarchies and power, bishops, central church government. It was something that existed to make sure that power happened at the congregational level and then rose up throughout the wider church. And as it rose up, it was diluted. It wanted to reject any sense of a class system in the church. It simply didn't jive with the way that the reformers read the Bible once it was in their hands. There was a sense of inclusion at the heart of Presbyterianism, certainly in its New Zealand iteration, which prized the ability of each person to pursue what they called the democratic intellect. It's one of the reasons why Presbyterians in New Zealand established so many educational institutions. They thought that what it meant to be a good Christian and a good citizen was to develop the capacity to think with a democratic intellect, to think democratically, to think about common goods for everybody and for all people. But quite ironically, Presbyterians since then and throughout the years have struggled with this notion. Turns out that erecting barriers to God in the name of God feels very right to people who self-describe as sinful people standing before God. If you go to um, the Toitu Museum in Dunedin, there's this wonderful celebration of early Presbyterianism where you can see um, a communion token. Uh, and this was uh, a coin, a token, a wooden coin, oftentimes, that your elder uh, back in the 1870s and 1880s would come around and uh, meet with you and talk with you. And if they deemed that you were, um, you know, kind of that you'd done enough confession, that you lived upright enough, then they would give you that coin to bring to church on Sunday so that you could access communion. And in those days, the table was not only closed to the unbaptized, but it was gated to the entire church. You needed a coin, which then became a card. Do, I, do you remember these? Some of you are old enough to remember these. Communion cards, right? Now, what was behind that? This deep appreciation, this deep humility and respect for God and for the call to live well. But it became a gate. It became something that people worried about that people avoided those interactions with their elders, with the ministers, with the church. And church records say that, you know, a lot of the taking of communion actually fell numerically because people never imagine that they're good enough if they're told that they have to prove that they are. But what Paul is describing is this very thing that we continue to struggle with, this word everyone, and how scandalous it is when it comes to church, when it comes to society, that we all stand before God primarily and not necessarily before each other as judges. And so we can think of the litany of people, of classes of people who have experienced some sense of gating or discrimination or hurdles, lack of accessibility in the church, even to become leaders, whether it's women or divorced people or gays and lesbians. We know all too well that when the church says all are welcome, that some people realize that they do it with their fingers crossed behind their back. And that's, I think, what Paul's trying to unpack. 
this great scandal of the gospel that he wants to um, introduce these people he's writing to, that anyone who calls on God and believes in their heart shows that there's already something going on in their hearts, that faith is not necessarily just a matter of intellect, but matter of something that's stirring in the heart. It isn't the key, a confession. It isn't the key that turns the ignition and starts the car. It's the fruit of the seed that God has already been watering for quite a long time. To say that Jesus is Lord is an expression of faith already. Something happened in that human heart to be able to say those words. One of the contributions that our intern from Princeton in the USA, Elise, who's just returned last week, brought to us was to help us have a conversation about this idea of inclusivity in community, where she particularly kind of showed us the, um, the need to look through a lens of disability and accessibility. And as part of that experience, you know, one of the first things we did was send her to Dunedin. Um, the heart of Presbyterianism, and to send her to meet all of the other um, interns around the country, where she discovered that ministers on the whole in in New Zealand Presbyterianism are much more conservatively minded than ministers on the whole at Princeton. This was not shocking to me. And one of the things that she wanted to focus my attention on was the way in which language functions. And there are many times that she felt rather upset when she was in these classes and these lectures because people would use language of disability to talk about spiritual accomplishment. I was blind and now I see. And she would say, what does that feel like to be a blind person who cannot make themselves see for you to be using that language as kind of an an achievement, an existential achievement? How do you think that makes somebody who cannot see and will never see feel? And so she brought this wonderful lens of, of thinking through the way that the church interacts with people who are differently abled, um, the way that um, people um, who come to church and might have different ways of connecting and different needs, and indeed different barriers, barriers that we don't even think about, but that we should start thinking about. And the beautiful thing that I think that she left with us is that there's always more work to do, and I think that's exactly where Paul is coming from. There's always more that we can do to expand, to be more spacious, to throw down gates, to let people, everyone, everyone, right? Paul talks about preaching. How will they know if they were not told? How will they experience if we don't invite? And how will they return if when they come they feel so horrible and so outsider? that they don't feel like they can ever fit in. It's strange, isn't it, to know that what plagued the church 2,000 years ago continues to plague us today. Paul wrote in at least two different contexts in the New Testament about there being no longer Jew or Gentile, about this being one of the most dynamic things that God had done in Christ, to overcome these ways of thinking in a binary fashion. And we still think in this way. We think in terms of theology, liberal, conservative. In terms of worship, we think of traditional or contemporary. In terms of music, we tend to think of organ or guitar. In terms of, you know, whether it be kind of people and their sexuality, gay or straight. The list goes on and on. And the one thing that we miss out on is Paul's invitation to the beautiful work of bringing good news. The beautiful work of bringing good news. And so it is the great work of the church, my friends, to make the good news of God's love plain and to know that there are those who still need to hear it. 
And where Paul talks about preaching, he doesn't define what it looks like. It may be a sermon in a building like this, but it may equally mean an act of selflessness and love out there on the streets this afternoon or tomorrow. You and I are about to gather around this table, the table that belongs not to me or to this church or to this tradition, but to Jesus himself, to Christ. And it's a reminder of the righteousness of faith, that God sent Jesus into the world to make communion, literally communion with God, as accessible as possible. I note that while next month our General Assembly will be debating insurance premiums and earthquake standards, the Presbyterian Church in the USA at their General Assembly next year will be debating whether it is right to serve communion to the unbaptized. This table is an answer to that call of Jesus as Lord that you've made in your hearts, no matter whether it's uttered out of your lips. It is an example of God returning to that confession of faith, an invitation to come and to dine and to be around God's table, a sure reminder that you fit in and that you're a member of the family. So let us approach this table and this time with hope and thanksgiving and celebrate the great grace that God has poured into our hearts. Amen. And amen.